This is not your typical after Thanksgiving sermon, so be, be mad at me later. This is not about food or yams or marshmallows. This is literally the opposite of what you would normally hear right after Thanksgiving. But I pray what is on my heart will convict yours. My prayer is that what I have been able to experience or even lack thereof, the, the inability to experience it, will encourage you to do what I lack at times. But I pray that this sermon moves you as much as it's moved me. I'll be honest with you in saying this, this practice, this, this opportunity to dive into the scriptures is something that you don't normally hear. The sermon I'm going to preach is something a little odd. So I pray that you will take it in stride and that you will be able to understand the premise and the discipline that this sermon includes and that we will all be able to enjoy it together. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity for us to dive into your word, God. Your word is beautiful and powerful all by itself. It is not, is not in need of me. My prayer is that when people read this scripture, they are convicted about the time that we spend with you, the lack thereof at times, and that we will be able to see and convict us according to what we need to give back to you. So God, I pray that this sermon is an opportunity to give back to you what you have placed on my heart, that I get to pour out my heart before your people and ask that you will bless your word. But honestly, that is unnecessary because you have already blessed it. You have given us the opportunity to learn from you. And I pray that we will glean the opportunity to be at your feet as you dive into the beauty of your word. I pray that people will see a beautiful picture painted by you about you and only about you. That God, we give you glory today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Thanksgiving is great. I love Thanksgiving. I'm not a Thanksgiving eater, so y'all can bear with me. I'm, my parents are from the Caribbean. We didn't really do like a humongous turkey. Well, we did, but it, I just never got into Thanksgiving food. So when everybody gets really excited, they wake up in the morning, they're ready to eat all their food. I don't get excited because honestly, I'd rather eat curry and roti. I'd rather eat something else. I'd rather eat one of my mom's or my wife's dishes. It doesn't matter to me because for some reason we were blessed. I got good cooking all the time. Uh, you know, Caribbean people, we eat all the time. So it's not like I needed Thanksgiving in order to eat well. If you tell anything by this suit, I don't need an excuse to eat well. This just comes naturally. So Thanksgiving is not my favorite holiday. So when you hear this sermon, you'll be like, he, does, he doesn't even care about Thanksgiving. So how about I just do this for you? Let me lay this out. I know you ate good. I know some of y'all are still tired and some of y'all are still eating leftovers. Amen. We can all clap together and get that out the way. But what I've recognized about Thanksgiving is right after Thanksgiving, I I was driving down 290. I had to go from one my in-laws to my parents' house, and we're driving down 290, and I see a whole bunch of cars exiting. So I was already full. I ate my filling. I was ready to go. I'm going to my mom's house to divulge, and everybody should be asking for forgiveness. The gluttony that you experience, that's still a sin. And many of us are still hung over from that food, not the alcohol. And we're driving down, I'm driving down 290. I look to my right and I see a line developing on 290, the exit right there by Cypress Wood. And, and I was like, why is there a big line? Why is there so much traffic? And then I realized, I forgot. Because right after you spend time with family, there's this thing called Black Friday. And I forgot right there on 290, there's this Best Buy. And I ain't going to lie to y'all, I did look. I ain't got no money. I looked. I didn't go. I looked. And I saw they had a TV that was like 70 inches for like $5.90. I was like, that sounds like a really good deal. But then I looked at my bank account and realized 
So I kept driving. I just no reason to stop. Just kept going. The 290 was good to me that day. I kept driving down the road. All of a sudden, I was like, man, the line was already wrapping around Best Buy. But right after, people like that crowd. They like to get around the crowd. They like the rush of running in the door and fighting people. And right after you spend time with family and tell them how much you're giving thanks for them, you beat them up while you're trying to get the TV. It's a weird thing about America where you say, I give thanks, but then want more stuff. But we'll leave that alone. But for me, I'm a little different. I guess it's my millennial age. I don't like the crowds. I don't like when people bumping into me when I shop. I don't shop at Walmart for that very reason. I hate Walmart. Now, to be honest with you, there's no promo there. Walmart gets on my nerves because they have a thousand things in their store and none of them know where it is. You ask one Walmart person in the section and they don't, sorry, I'm gonna go off. This, <laughs> and then when you finally find the one thing that you need, there's only two registers open for 100 people. You're like, how y'all not going to have enough employees? And you have employees walking around, but they ain't at the register. If they don't know where nothing at, you might as well go sit at the register and at least let me check out. They don't even, they don't even do the two. I, I don't, never mind. So I don't do stores. But what I do is I shop online. Cyber Monday comes right after Friday. And Cyber Monday is when you get to sit in your own pajamas you don't have to rub up against nobody. It ships in two days, comes to your front door. You don't need to go to registers. You don't need to fight nobody because I can't fight. You don't need to stand in a line for four hours for one thing. You just sit on your computer, your phone, you click buttons, and then it arrives. I realize that that's something like life. That's something like Christianity is that many of us love crowds, but we don't like being by ourselves. See, when you're by yourself, you get an opportunity to sit there and divulge in the website. You get to read the details. You get to be by yourself on your computer. But when you're in a crowd, you have to make a rushed decision. You think you know what you want, but then you make a decision that sometimes is not necessarily what you need. The reason why many of us in this room make bad decisions is because we don't have enough time alone with God. We don't read details of God. We don't get an opportunity to sit there in comfort with God. We don't have an opportunity for God to confront us with our bank accounts and say, you don't even have the money. But many of us swipe our credit cards because we're in a rush to buy this Christianity. We're in a, a rush to be with something else. We're in an opportunity to be around crowds of people. We are divulging in our phones. We love our Twitter, our Instagram, and our Facebook. But we have stopped, and I guess you would say we have lacked the discipline to learn how to be, to be by yourself. This is going to be the weirdest sermon because we're in a church surrounded by people. And you're like, well, Pierre, how are you going to talk about Living Word Fellowship Church? But then you're going to tell me that I need to practice learning how to be in this word called solitude. It's a spiritual discipline that we don't often talk about. It's something that many of us in this room probably don't experience or many of us do, but it's distracted. We have our phones, our emails right next to us, and we say we're doing our devotions, but we are extremely distracted when we do it. We say we're in our prayer time, but our phone is buzzing. We are ready to work. We're late to work. We're grabbing coffee out the door. We're praying in our cars, but we are extremely distracted by traffic. What happened to solitude? The reason why many of us lack the intimacy with God is not because he's not there. It's because we lack the mountaintop experience to experience him confronting your soul with just you and him. The opportunity to be alone in the intimacy with God, the opportunity where no distractions, no kids, no thing, no, no mind on something else. You stop for a moment and you experience what it is to be on a mountain with just God by yourself. I'm going to say this and I pray I'll get into the word quickly is this church is the opportunity for your weekly worship of God to be a culmination right here at this service. 
people leave churches in and out because they're looking for a mountaintop experience every Sunday. But your mountaintop experience is not some exuberation of worship where we have fog machines right behind me and all of a sudden I'm doing some amazing word with some telescope and I'm giving you some amazing illustrations so you feel like you had a mountaintop experience. Your mountaintop experience is when you sit alone with God and he confronts your soul about the beauty of his word so that when you come here, you are already excited because God already spoke to you all week and now he's fixing to speak to you again. See, America's different. We like Black Friday to be surrounded by people so that we can feel like we're a part of something great. We can feel like we're a part of the next trending church of America and we can feel like we have the best church in the world. But your church happens every day. We have missed it. Our Bibles are dusty. We blow them off on Sunday. We make sure that we're ready. We put on our fancy clothes only to realize that we have not spent enough time with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ all week. But we call being alone like my me time. But it's not your me time. It is your God time. And we have missed it. So in Matthew 14, verse 20, verse 13, it reads something simple. I'm only going to set you up right here. So I pray that you will stay with me. In Mark, Matthew 14, 13, you're going to see something beautiful, but you're also going to see the opposite of what we do. In Matthew 14, verse 13, it reads this. But I want to set this up for you. So while you're turning there, while you're already there, I want you to see something. John the Baptist was just beheaded. Right. And you have his disciples that went ahead and buried John the Baptist. So I want you to catch the premise of what Jesus is fixing to do. You would think that Jesus would be going with the people to bury John the Baptist. You would think that he would surround himself by people to be comforted or comfort them in the midst of all their pain. But for some reason, Jesus does something totally different. And I'm going to cross-reference this in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, and you'll understand exactly what happens right after the beheading. Now, when Jesus heard, didn't go, heard about John, he withdrew. He withdrew. He didn't go into people. He went away from them. Pay attention. The word withdrew is something simple. It's to go a considerable distance from wherever you are. Now, bear with me. I'm trying to set up this word solitude for you, so just stay with me. When he heard about John the Baptist and his disciples buried him, He went a considerable distance from a location so that nobody would be next to him. Then it says this, from a boat and secluded place by himself. He didn't go with a crowd. He didn't heal. He didn't have feeding 5,000. He went by himself into an isolation. Now, Pierre, you're like, this is weird. Why would after a death he would go by himself? And I started to realize one thing, one thing that he withdrew for the safety because he recognized that Herod was going to do something crazy. If he's going to kill John the Baptist, he might kill and continue to persecute the Christians that were coming forth. But that's not the point. The point is that he withdrew and he secluded for his own safety. You know what I've learned about Americans and people in this room and me and myself is that when I feel hurt, I go towards people. We go to crowds of people. We try to call people. We make phone calls first. We text first. And if you're a millennial, you Facebook first. You tweet first. You Instagram first. We try to get people involved in our pain. But then Jesus did something totally different. He went to himself, to a place far away from people so it could just be him and God. I want to ask you a question. When you're in pain, where do you run to? 
When you see danger surrounding you, do you run to God or from him? If you are fatigued of what is happening around you, where do you go for your rest, your strength, your comfort, and your ability to rejuvenate yourself? People give us energy, but they also take it away. This is going to sound really bad, but just bear with me. How many of you have ever been around people and then felt more tired when you left? <laughs> Don't look to the person next to you. Just focus. I, I didn't say tell your neighbor you take energy from me. It's not no marriage counseling today. How many of you ever came to church, served, and felt empty when you left because you gave everything you had today? What I'm trying to get you to understand is that there are moments of rejuvenation that are necessary in protection of self, that you be able to get to yourself, that you say, I'm going to seclude myself in isolation so that I can get back in tune with God so I can go back and serve others. The issue with many of us is we try to find our energy in people and not in God. We try to find our protection in bottles. We try to try to for protection in going out with the ladies and having a ladies night. Or some of us even use this word me time. We'll tell our family, hey, I just need some me time. But that me time is not necessarily God's time. That me time is just you chilling by yourself on your phone. That's the opposite of what Jesus did. He said, I went away in isolation. That means there was no distractions. When's the last time you left your phone behind? When's the last time you left your emails behind, that, that phone call behind? When's the last time you recognized that that phone call will be there when you get back? One of the best advice somebody gave me is that that email will be there as soon as you get back from your quiet time. It's not going anywhere. It sits there. It's a, it's a notification on your phone. It, it just stays where it is. But many of us, bear with me, treat whatever our distraction is as God itself. That means we give more attention to the distractions than we do to the opportunity to have undivided attention on God. But let me just define solitude. I gave you withdrew. I gave you secluded. But watch the word for solitude. It took me a while to find this because, honestly, nobody talks about it. And that's why I told you this sermon will either be eye-opening or boring because many of us don't care about this spiritual discipline. But I think this is one of the most eye-opening experiences. If you just look at the definitions, he withdrew. He went into solitude. He went into isolation. But what does solitude even mean? Solitude is where we confront our own souls where we conflict with ourselves and we give attention without the interaction of others. I hope you write that down. It is conf confrontation with oneself. I'm in leadership and this is PhD, so don't bear with me. I know this is, I'm going to get to these points. I know you want a lot of scripture, so we're going to get there. You ever heard of self-awareness? Our emotional intelligence. This may be deep for y'all, but this is actually context. Self-awareness is the ability to know what you are thinking inside of yourself so you don't continue to act out without knowing what you're doing. It's like getting in an argument, but then you look back after the argument and realize you were probably wrong the whole time. But because you weren't self-aware, you continue in the argument only to argue because you don't want to lose, not knowing that you were just being ignorant in the first place. Being self-aware is the ability to confront one's soul so that you don't get into countless arguments or senseless arguments for no reason. That means you are self-aware of what's going on on the inside. But the only way for you to be self-aware of what's going on on the inside is for you to spend time by yourself. 
we have to be, have the ability to confront oneself to know what's going on on the inside so we stop wasting our time with the interactions with others so that when we have an interaction, it is actually pointful, edifying, and for the purpose of what it's supposed to be. How many marriages and arguments would be a little bit shorter if both people were self-aware? We often talk about IQ, but I also am going to re- return that word, and it's another word we use in my PhD. It's called EQ, emotional intelligence. See, a lot of people think, oh, I'm smart. But have you ever met that person that's book smart but just emotionally dumb? (laughs) They can tell you a whole bunch of quotes from the Bible but don't act them out at all. It's because they don't spend time taking that word of God and letting it digest in their lives so they confront their very souls with who they are. But only solitude can give you the opportunity for silence to confront yourself. I'm trying to get you to understand solitude is necessary. But have you noticed anything about America? And this may be just for my millennial people in this room or just the younger ones. I know I've seen some flip phones in here, so this is not your problem. <laughs> Sorry, I just got to. I don't know who does this anymore. It used to be cool. Have you ever noticed that Satan is very busy with keeping you busy? See, a lot of times with the spiritual people in the first service, y'all, y'all like the spiritual ones. Y'all are whew, the breath of fresh air. Satan just wants to keep you busy. It may not want to get you with a whole bunch of distractions with sin because y'all are too spiritual for that. Y'all don't fall for, I know y'all in here, y'all aren't tempted by anything. But if he can keep you busy and away from interacting with God, you lack the intimacy to know who you are so that then you don't make the same mistakes. But if he can make everyone in this room Martha's, you won't sit at Jesus' feet. If I can make you want to clean a house. So after Thanksgiving, many people went back to the kitchen, washed the dishes so you can finally sit down. So, therefore, you didn't really spend time with family. You just cleaned up and cooked. And then when family was over, we all did what every person in this room knows what that is. We went to a comatose. We hit the itis. We went to sleep. So, in reality, what did we do? We spent 30 minutes over the food, barely talking because we was taking it in. And then all of a sudden, everybody watched the football game and fell asleep. That is what happens in life is that God is saying, hey, or Satan is saying, hey, if I can just make you eat your food on Sunday, then I'll put you into a comatose where you don't do anything with your spiritual walk. Then when you wake up, I'll make you busy again. I put you at work on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You do devotions for five minutes a day. You don't spend any time in solitude. And all of a sudden, you get back up for Sunday and you do it all over again. But I can make you a Martha. I may not get you with this. I may not get you with sins, but I can get you with busyness. So guess what happens sooner or later? You get further and further away from God. And I'm going to say this, and it may hurt a little bit, and I promise I'm getting back to this. But watch this. If you're the same person you were last year, it's probably because you haven't confronted yourself with who you really are. And I'm not talking about sins. I'm talking about if you have the same emotional hate, bitterness. I'm talking about those those ones that are under the flesh, the ones that nobody talks about, the gossip that you consistently do on the phone, those small things that we don't call sins anymore. We're just, I'm just praying for them, that stuff. 
If you're doing the same things, it might be because you have not gotten to the point where you have confronted your soul for the very details. Psalms 134 says, you search, know, and try me. But God has to do that, and you need time for that. But watch what happens next. After he goes into safety, Mark 630, one more turn there with me, just, just bear with me. I'll keep giving you more definitions. But in Mark 630, it says something like this. This is the same cross-reference, so don't be distracted and don't be alarmed. In the same cross-reference, the same thing. John the Baptist was dead. It says the apostle gathered together with Jesus in verse 30 and reported to him all they had done and taught. Verse 29 says they went away with his body and they buried it in a tomb. And verse 31 says, watch what Jesus' advice was. They had done all these crazy things. They had went around. They buried John the Baptist's body. And all of a sudden, he says this. You would think, say, Jesus say, hey, come away with me and let's go back to work. But he says this. Come away by who? Yourselves. To a secluded place and rest a while. You know, I've learned... There are many many reasons why this church can have the tendency to fall or not be as vibrant as it's supposed to be is because you haven't secluded yourself and rested a while. I just came off a week vacation. Y'all might get like a 70-minute word today. Not really. Because I had a chance to what? Rest a while. Have you ever noticed when pastor come back from vacation? Buckle your seatbelts. You finna get the hour and a half word of God. Inspired, though. That man had time. Don't give pastor time. His notes are already 60 pages. Don't give him 70. Don't give him 80 pages worth of notes. You're going to get all 80 that Sunday. That's the Sunday you go to second service. Like, whoo, Jesus. Because he had time to rest. See, America teaches you a different lesson. It says, stay busy. But if Jesus himself says, hey, I've seen all the things you've done in the church. I've seen all your service. I've seen everything you've done for your family. I've seen the fact that you're a great mother, a great father. I've seen the fact that you have served. I've seen the fact that you go to work every day. I want you to go for a second and rest. Because that means that you can go back to doing what you're supposed to do vibrant and ready for service. The reason why our worship service can drag on certain Sundays, the reason why some of us are sleeping past church on Sundays is not because you are not as Christians, because you never took an opportunity to rest. So we rest on a day we're not supposed to, and that's on the Sunday, because you didn't take the opportunity to get away by yourself and rest. But watch what happens in Mark 4, 14, 23. Watch, let's go. Matthew 14, 23. Let's read real quick, and we're, we're moving. It says this. And this is where it gets better. In Mark, Matthew 14, it says this, 23. And he sent the crowds away. What is he doing again? Because if you notice in the verses between these two verses, what happens? He tries to get away, but he never gets the opportunity because they found out where he was and they all followed him. Now, bear with me. This is going to make sense in a second. So if he says, I'm going to go seclude myself in isolation to get some safety, get, to get away for a second, to find rest, and all of a sudden, guess what the people did? They followed him because they found out where he was, and then he fed 5,000 people. 
But you would think Jesus would be like, all right, I guess I didn't get a chance to rest. I'm not going to find it. I'm not going to get an opportunity by myself. And this is where the verse picks up because this is where the verse turns great because after he didn't find the rest and the time to get away, he finds it again. So this should show you one thing. As Jesus was sincere about getting some solitude. If he didn't find it once, he's going to find it again. So this time he gets away. Immediately, verse 22, he made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him. Not with him. Ahead of him. To the other side while he sent the crowds away. While he sent, hey, I fed you. I've taught you. Now go away. Now, this is sometimes a mean thing in church, in our houses, we don't want to do this because it sounds rude. And I'm not saying use these words to your husband now. I fed you, now go away. <laughs> don't use this excuse. If you have kids and you're like, ah, kids, I fed you, now go away. Now, it's not saying use this excuse. What I am saying is that you have to be intentional with sometimes putting things away so you can find time by yourself. That means putting away your phones. That means putting away your emails. That means waking up a little earlier to spend time with the Lord because you know as soon as you get to work, there is no time for you. That means putting away the conversations that many of us have rather than talking to God. But he sent them away. Let me ask you a question before I continue. Is how many things in your life do you need to send away from you? How many things that you are prioritizing that take away your quiet time? How many things in your life you're saying, I need them to be away for a little bit? The reason why many of us struggle with this question is because those are too important to you. If I were to say, hey, how many of you need to put your phones away for a second? How many of you, I mean, again, I know you got flip phoners in here, but the other people that don't, the smartphones. How many of you have people in your life that you just don't get time away from? I'll ask this. Who's the first thing or person you run to when you have a problem? This will tell you the story. Who's the first phone call you make? Sometimes those are exact things or people we need to send away for a little bit. Because they are replacing your time with God. Sometimes our husband or our wives become our place of solitude when really they can never do and satisfy what God can do by himself. But then he says the next word. This is important. He sent them away so he can go somewhere else. And he sent the crowds away and he went up where? To a mountain. There was nobody there. Have you ever noticed mountains play a humongous part in the Bible? Where did Moses and God talk? Where did Elijah talk with God? Mountain. Where does Jesus go? mountain. I've experienced this for the first time. I went to Colorado and they said, I want you to spend six hours by yourself. This wasn't a Christian thing either. Listen, watch, watch, what's, watch what's really weird about this. This was an unchristian leadership thing in Houston that supposedly is, I don't know, but they were like, we're all in Colorado, a whole bunch of business owners and leaders and nonprofit, all these big people. And they said, you've lost the art of solitude. This is unchristian people. So they took us to a mountain and said, spend six hours by yourself. Now, many of my friends in that group, they went away and started doing some things, creating vision for their lives and their businesses. But I opened up my Bible. 
And for three hours, I got a chance to read it without distraction. I tell you, God has never spoke so clearly to me. One of my favorite sermons came from that moment because I finally had time away. But it was on a mountain by myself. Sitting there looking at God's beauty by myself and I had an opportunity to say, this is just me and you, God. He goes away on a mountain by himself, but then he gives you the clearest words of day. What's next? To pray. Remember I told you you have to confront oneself? Another definition of solitude with prayer, it includes prayer. It has to. In stark aloneness, it is possible to have silence and be still. And then it says that a normal course of day-to-day interactions with people and, and dealing with the world and the sin of it, you need to get away so that you can spend time in prayer to confront the world you live in. But what is prayer? You know what's crazy is that this church opens up a whole bunch of opportunities for prayer, but then we have the least attendance on those days. If we say, hey, it's the prayer visual on Tuesday, we get less people than we usually get on Tuesday, which means it's less than less. If Tuesdays we get 100 out of 2,000 people, 100 on a Tuesday, out of 2,000 people on a roll sheet, but then you say prayer visual and you get 50? How important is prayer to you? Before service, every Sunday they get together and they pray right here. How important is prayer to you? Not only collectively, but individually. How many of you have an isolation spot where it's just you and God for time for prayer? Is it your closet? Is it your bedroom? Is it your car? And I'm not, I'll give you a I'll give you a time reference so you can say, oh, Pierre is trying to force us into some legalism. And I'm not trying to do that today. But I want to know how many of us seclude ourselves, but not just for me time, for the opportunity to pray with God. But here's the crazy thing about prayer. Prayer is communication with God. But the last time I studied communication with God is communication goes two ways. The issue with American prayer is that we give God our petitions, which is the definition of prayer, but we don't wait for his answer. And since we don't wait for his answer, it's usually because we're too busy. So we go and we give our petitions to God, but we don't have time to answer. So God is sitting there saying, you ran off before I can give you an answer. So that some of us are walking around just desperate for God to do something. So we run to people to satisfy what God was waiting to give you. But you leave in 10 minutes and you say, I'm done with prayer time. God, I hope you speak to me while I walk. And God's like, I wanted this time to talk to your heart, not necessarily so you could see how I act during the period of a day. Many of us in this room are missing the opportunity for communication that goes back and forth. But on the mountain, though, on the opportunity for there to be a mountaintop experience where God can speak back to you. And I'm not talking about a verbal response. I'm talking about you pray. And then you wait for God to convict you through the Holy Spirit. You wait for the God to say, this is what I want you to do. How many of you have never experienced God's voice, but you experienced his clarity? It's different. I know you're like, Pierre, how do you define the two? It's because God at times will, you will say, God, what do I do? When I'm single and I want to date, who do I date? When I'm married and I don't know how to handle this argument, and all of a sudden you get scriptures that come back to your remembrance, and it becomes very clear what you have to do. 
But it only comes with time. If you are still handling problems the same way, you've probably missed it. If you are still doing your devotions the same way without an opportunity for God to speak clearly into your life, I wonder how many lives in this sanctuary would change if people just said, God, it's just me and you today. When I look around this room and I see all the veteran saints, the people who've been in the faith for a minute, the people who have done Christianity for a minute, and they're like, I don't know how to get deeper with God. This is the discipline that's missing. If I say raise your hand if you're in a routine with God that you need to break. That's what I'm saying is that this is something I'm teaching and preaching. I knew it wouldn't be my most exciting sermon. I knew nobody would be standing up and clapping, but I knew that if you just listened, I knew if you just listened, some of our walks with God would change. We, we just don't do this anymore. It's something that we say we do, but it's not intimate anymore. We're in a routine of quiet times. I read the daily bread once a day. I read my verse, and then all of a sudden I think God spoke in five minutes, and then I move on to my next thing. If I said, raise your hand if you're not a morning person, you'd be like, that's not me. Fine. Are you a night person? Are you a lunch break person? Are you the person that gets that time away with God when you get on your lunch break? Are you, I'm not trying to be legalistic here, but I know one thing is that prayer is communication that needs time. Prayer is not just your petitions. It is your communication and it's your intercession and it is your dependency. Now watch this. Prayer is where you also get an opportunity to have intercession for others. Will you pray for the wife you're mad at? Will you pray for the husband you are irritated with? Will you pray for the salvation of others that have not come to the faith? Will you sit down and you intercede on behalf of those who are hurting and broken? How many times have you looked to your right and your left and you realize somebody's not at church, but you have not spent enough time in prayer for them? You know who's not here. You sit next to them. We have assigned seats here at Living Word Fellowship Church. When I preach at first service, I know exactly where everybody is. But if you know where you sit, and the ushers know where you sit, and you walk back, you walk past the usher who's trying to tell you to sit somewhere else. And then you don't let nobody sit in your seat. And then you give them evil eyes when they do sit in your seat. Then that means you also know who's missing next to you. Because they're probably doing the same thing. When's the last time you interceded in prayer on behalf of someone else rather than yourself? But you need solitude for that. And the last thing prayer does is it shows your dependency on God. If you don't pray, it also is a sign you're not dependent on his answer. If you choose to spend three minutes of prayer time a day, but also showing God, I don't need you for more than three minutes today. Prayer is your opportunity to say, God, I need you now. Prayer is your opportunity for you to say, God, I can't do this without you. So I lift it in prayer. 
The issue is that many of us are used to doing life by ourselves, so we continue in a pattern of life without prayer, so we just keep doing life. But God, you're like, why hasn't my life changed? I say, has your prayer life changed yet? Some of us in this room are like, I don't know why my marriage isn't changing. Have you lifted up lately? Your job hasn't changed. Your money hasn't changed. Nothing has changed in your life. It's because you are dependent on self. But prayer is an opportunity to say, I'm dependent on God. But it needs to be quiet for that. And I'm not talking about praying over your meal as it gets cold because now you're rushing because you want your meal. I'm talking about time. The most valuable thing many of us have in this room, we may not have a lot of money. We may not have all the things in this world. We may not have Bugattis outside. But one thing we do have is time. And it's valuable. He says he went away to pray. But look how long he prayed for. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Remember, he sent his disciples away. So let me give you context. They went in the boat. He went to the mountain. Then all of a sudden you notice as they start to go through a storm. You heard this story before. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time. They go through a storm. He doesn't care. Because he was spending time in prayer. If you don't believe me, look at the next verse. It says, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, and the wind was contrary. In the fourth watch, if you need a time reference for the fourth watch, let's just do it with me. And the fourth watch means something simple like this. Between 3 and 6 a.m., the fourth watch would be between that time. So that means he prayed from 3 p.m., possibly, all the way till 6 a.m. While his disciples, who he loved, were going through a storm. Now, this sermon could preach all by itself is the fact that Jesus would rather spend time in prayer with God before he walked on the water. Now, this is also a lesson for us is that many of us treat our storms in life without the person who can quiet them down. So we'd rather hop off our mountain, go down and fix the storm, rather than say, God, I know you can fix it anyways, so I'm going to finish my prayer time. If you're like me, if you read a book, it's, called Char- it's by Charles Hummel. It's called Tyranny of the Urgent. I would challenge you to read that book, Tyranny of the Urgent by Charles Hummel. It is a 60-page pamphlet. It costs like $1.99 on Kindle. It's the easiest thing to read. But what he says is don't jump into the urgent needs of life without praying first. So what we should do is spend time on our mountain before we start trying to conquer the urgent needs of life. Because most of the time, guess what? If you don't have the storm fixer, why are you walking down to fix a storm? Secondly, if you don't have clarity on what the storm really is, what you going to do with the storm in the first place? Thirdly, if you don't have God confronting your soul about the storm, and maybe it's your fault. And you're walking to a storm trying to fix people when God says, I'm trying to fix you. Solitude gives you an opportunity to confront yourself, and then later you can confront your storms. I love how Jesus did that. He knew that they were being battered by waves, but he had a lesson in it. (laughs) Sometimes we are being battered by a storm so we can call out to the storm fixer. But guess what? He's still coming. So instead of them being scared and anxious, they should have been praying just like Jesus was. Because did you notice something about that scripture? He sent them away too. 
So what should they have been doing on the boat? They should have been relaxing and praying because they know they have a Jesus who can fix the storm. But instead, they are anxious over a storm because they weren't spending time with God. They were saying, I can fix this storm because I used to be a fisherman too. Guess what y'all do? Guess what we do? Guess what I do? I've done this walk before. I fixed my marriage before. I know how to be on this boat in a storm. So we don't pray. We just fix. How many of you have been married long enough? I, this is, this is going to be crazy, but I'm just going to say it. When I first got married, every man probably did this and probably still do this, and this might be good marital counseling time. How many of you, when your wife told you something that she was going through, we try to fix it right away? Like we weren't even listening. We we're just waiting for her to finish the two-hour-long sermon so that we can finally fix the situation. They would spend about a good 60 minutes giving you details that were unnecessary. Just don't be mad at me. Just mad at me later. You can pray for me in your solitude later. So my wife, when I first got married, I just put it on my wife. All the ladies in here aren't the same. And I, my wife would start telling me a whole bunch of things that happened at work. I mean, a whole bunch of things. I mean, the, from, from 6 a.m. to 2.30. Oh, and she was at Eisenhower ninth grade, so you could tell there was a lot of details to be discussed about these kids. I knew names. I knew ages. I knew grades. I knew what grades they made. I knew where they ate lunch. I knew which kid was bad. I knew what kid was good. I, I, I knew everything about the, her classes. Now picture this. That's seven classes. <laughs> every day. <laughs> that was an hour long every day. And I was like, can you just skip to the end? What happened at 2.30 so we can fix this problem? Oh. And so when she would finish, and I, after the first three years of marriage, she said, baby, I didn't need you to fix it. I needed you to listen. I don't know how many women in this room would just agree with that statement. Okay, there we go. Now turn to your marriage neighbor and say amen. All right, there we go. And I'm going to say the same thing to you. God is looking at you today and he's saying, how many of you would stop talking and just listen? That's it. Another thing my wife would do is the second thing. Watch this. She would say, if she came to me while I was watching the Rockets game, if I was watching the Rockets game and she came to me, I already knew. I thank God I grew up in this, in this time when they had this button on the remote that nobody else had in y'all, some of y'all's day. It's a pause button. I love it. Monica would be like, guess what happened at work today? I'd be like, ugh. But I didn't do that. Inside, I would do that. Inside, I wouldn't do it outside. I'd be like, what happened, babe? Click a Because I wanted to give her my undivided attention. So the second thing I learned about solitude is this. Some of us need to pause life so we can give God our undivided attention so that we can communicate without distraction. It's all about pausing life. The good news is that God wants to talk to you. This is what I want you to understand. Is that God wants to talk to you. Here's the crazy thing about God is that you would think as busy as he is, he wouldn't want to talk to you. Now think how big he is. And we think we're busy. 
Now go to the hospital and say, my God isn't busy. Go to a world spinning and Mars and all these other planets are experiencing gravity and tell me that God is not busy. But for some reason, although he is busy, he still says, I want to talk to you. So think how oxymoronic it has to be for you to tell God, I was too busy. That's the weirdest thing we do. It's for some reason, we're too busy for a God that does everything for us. But let me move on. Let's finish here because there's a conclusion to this. Solitude is not just so that we can get clarity through prayer of what God wants us to do. Clarity is also so that we can get back to what he wants us to do. So when we go in solitude, we seek his will through prayer. God, what is your will? If you need evidence of that, you can go to Matthew 26 and 36, but you already know the story. It's the Garden of Gethsemane, and God says, not my will be done, but thy will be done. But where did Jesus do that prayer? All by himself. He walks to the garden. He leaves his disciples behind him. He walks further into the garden, and he begins to cry out before God because he knows the will of God he has to do. But right after that, this is the beauty. Right after that, he does the will of God. And you're like, well, Pierre, why is that important? Because your solitude gives you the energy to go do the will of God. The reason why you go into solitude is so that when you're done praying and God giving you clarity about his will in your life, you get up fully rested and energized with God's strength and you go do it now. Watch, if you don't believe me, I'm going to give you so much evidence to support my claim that the reason why many of us should seek God in prayer is so that you can go do it. The issue with many of us is that we know what God wants us to do, but we fail to do it. So even though God is speaking clearly about giving you his will, many of us say, it's not thy will be done, but my will be done. We reverse the prayer. So even though we know what God wants us to do and he has spoken clearly in your quiet time, many of us are still the same because we don't do what he tells us to do. But solitude is for the result. Solitude is not, I repeat, is not just for the time. We go away from people so that we can go back and serve them. If you have solitude all week, the moment you step into church and your jobs or places of people in need, you will be ready to serve them because you already spent time with the person who gives you energy. The reason why churches are dead and dying and don't have the energy to serve each other is because we spend too much time with other people. So when we get around people, we're too tired to serve the rest of them. So if you come to church, and you're like, well, I'm just tired. I'm just here. Pierre better preach this sermon today. It's a little too dry for me today. He didn't crack enough jokes for me today. And I'm like, you're missing the point. Because if you came here to get energy, you already missed it. If you came to church to make sure that you got fed, you already probably missed your feeding time. If you came here thinking, oh, when they sing my favorite song, I'm finally going to stand up and lift my hands, you missed your solitude. Because your solitude is where you were supposed to have an opportunity with the strength giver, the storm fixer, so that you could be busy with God's work. Have you noticed that God, Jesus, stayed busy, but then he took his rest. But right after his rest, watch the evidence. Matthew 4, he goes 40 days in a desert before he starts his what? Ministry. 
Uh, we pay attention to the temptation part, and that's important. But we don't pay attention to is the fact that he went by himself in a desert for 40 days and 40 nights so that he could get ready for ministry. Moses, guess what he did? He had to spend time in the desert so that he can get ready to lead people through the desert. Then you have Paul. He went and he was blind for three days, and they said he also went away in the desert so that he can give time to people in the desert of their lives. So what I guess I'm trying to get you to understand is that God puts you in solitude sometimes so that you can be ready to serve those who are in a desert. But the issue is that many of us don't recognize the beauty of being in the desert. If your life is in a desert is because God is stripping away your distractions so that you can spend time with him. I wonder how many of us got mad at God for taking away what was distracting you from him in the first place. Oh, this is, this is, this is crazy. Is that many of us in this room get mad at God for taking away things from us. But in reality, God is saying, I'm trying to put you in a desert so it's just me and you now. You can't get distracted now. I took it away for you. Moses had to go in a desert. Paul had to be blinded. Jesus spent time in a desert. All so they can get ready to serve God. So I don't know if you've been in a desert, are fixing to go in a desert, are, gonna, are in a desert now. But enjoy your desert experience. Because that's just you and God now. I know you've seen movies. None of us have been in the desert. I'm just guessing. But the crazy part about a desert, there's nothing there. And guess what you have to be dependent on in a desert? God, because you can't find water, you can't find food. It's just you and God. And sometimes you have to crack a rock to get water to come out of it because you're dependent on God. That desert is what we need. It's not what we're running away from. Oh. I've seen God be... I've seen people be mad at their singleness. I've seen people be mad at the time in their life where their phones are what young people call a desert where they have nobody hitting it up and dating and all these different experiences. And I'm like, enjoy your desert because God is working on you. Oh, we're too busy trying to find our next mate. We're too busy trying to find our next dating experience. We're too busy trying to find our next husband and wife. And I'm like, no, enjoy your desert because he's still working on you. Let me move on. Right after you, in the same scripture in Matthew 14, verses 23, he goes on and he calms the storm after he had, had time with God. But in the middle of that text, when he's walking by himself on the water, one person screams out to God named Peter. First, they were scared. and He said, if that's you, let me walk on this water with you. And then guess, guess how many people came out in that water? Just one. If I saw Peter, just being honest, getting to experience water walking, I'd be like, hey, God, pick me too, because I would have been like, yo, this is dope. I always wanted to walk on water. But only one person had the bravery to get out there. But what happens when it's just him and God and all he can look at is Jesus? He starts to get what? Distracted. Man. But if he would have just kept his eyes on Jesus... He would have walked all the way to him. The issue with many of us is that we're too worried about our waves that we don't have the opportunity to just have communion with God one-on-one. -on -one. But the beauty of the text is that who was on the water with him? 
Jesus. If you miss this, I don't know if you got the sermon, is that when you spend time in solitude, even though there's waves around you, he's in solitude with you because he's in the water with you. He's not miles away. He just wants you to continue to walk and stay focused in your solitude. But many of us, when we get time to ourselves, we get nervous because it's too quiet and we start to look at the wind and the waves and we're getting away from what God is saying. He says, just walk to me. But think if, think if Peter just continued to walk to him. What a beautiful experience to go face to face with your Jesus while a storm rages around you. How many of you have experienced that where there's so much peace in your life, even while there's a storm around you? But many of us have a little Peter problem. We look to our wind and the waves and we begin to sink in our problems But the beauty of the story is that Jesus didn't let him drown. Mm, Y'all, Jesus walks to him where he's at and where he's drowning. Jesus didn't say, hey, swim to me and I'll pick you up. No. Jesus walks to him where he's at and picks him up. but it was just him and Jesus. I'm just saying sometimes it's a beautiful experience when you're all by yourself and you feel God pick you up in the midst of your storm. But you got to get out the boat first. Many of us ain't even out the boat. We still worried about the storm inside the boat. I'm like, no, walk on water. Experience God's power. But we don't have time for solitude anymore. I've given you example after example about what happens after solitude is that we get back to work. I wonder if this church all week spent 15 minutes. I'm not saying go 3 p.m. to 6 a.m. with your prayer time. I'm not even saying you're going to find that much time in your day. If you retired, I hope you find that much time in your life. But I'm not saying you will. But what about 30 minutes? What about your lunch break where you get away from the lunchroom and you say, I'm going to go spend time at my desk, just me and God. I'm going to put some headphones in my ears so nobody can call my name. and I'm just going to have worship music going on while it's just me and God. And then I'm going to close my Bible and say, God, speak to me. Then I'm going to say, God, I need your time and your devotion right now. I just want to hear from you. What is that time that you're missing? Does Twitter take it? Does Instagram take it? Does your job take it? Do your marriages take it? Has your thoughts of your singleness take it? What's taking your mind away from God? Because the solitude is not about your actions externally. It's about your mind and soul internally. I just think it's time for us to be alone sometimes. So I don't know how else to say this, but there's only one way to close this, and you're going to catch why. I went to my daughter's room last night, and here's the thing. I think God gives me illustrations when I don't expect it. So my boys are always asleep. They just fall asleep. They're men. (laughs) They do. My my boys, that's what they do. They just, I put them in bed, they fall asleep. My wife says I can do the same thing. If we lay down, that's the purpose of laying down, ladies. I'm just going to give that out to you. It's not time for pillow talk. It's time for, if you said, hey, baby, let's go to bed, that means for me, Go to bed. But for my wife, it means, mm, let's talk. 
I'm not saying one is right. I'm just saying one requires a pillow, so that would make me right. If it requires a pillow, that means it requires to me to lay down, which means I have to go to sleep because that's what the pillow is telling me to do. But let's leave that alone. Pillow doesn't require talking. It just requires laying, but we'll just leave that there. Well, my daughter, she has that gene in her already. There's a couple things I can count on when I walk into my boy's room. They're sprawled out all over their beds. They never sleep the same position once. They're on the, their, their, their heads where their foot's supposed to be. My other son is sprawled out on the other side of the bed, and both of them, for some reason, don't wear shirts. I don't know what's going on in my house, but for some reason, they think they have muscles. But then after I go to that room, I walk to my daughter's room. Some of my favorite experiences. There's a couple things that happen when I go to my daughter's room. If she is asleep, I'll kiss her, and I'll say goodnight, and I love you. And she'll wake up out of her sleep and say, I love you too. That's one. Number two, she's not asleep. <laughs> That's why I go to her last. And I love this about Natalia. That's her favorite time to cuddle and talk. So my wife trained me for my daughter. So last night I saw her and I gave her a kiss. I said, good night. And she says, good night, daddy. I was like, you sound awake. She's like, I am awake. I think ladies think a lot at night. That's just going to put that out there. I just think they have a lot on their minds. I guess she had a rough day. So I lay down with my daughter and we begin to talk. And she says, daddy, I'm glad you laid down because I was reading my devotions. And I have a question. I was like, well, shoot, I'll, I'll answer any question you have. She said, if love is selfish, if love is not selfish, what happens when I'm selfish? I got a chance to sit down with her for about 30 minutes, lay down with her for 30 minutes, and we just talked. And right when I was fixing to get up, she says, Daddy, thank you for sitting down and laying down with me and cuddling, because I'm glad we had a chance to talk. But that only happened when we were by ourselves. My prayer for y'all in this room is that you get to lay down with God. Because sometimes those conversations are the most intimate conversations you could ever have. And then when you get up and you realize, Jesus, thank you for talking with me. Because I had so many questions about your word today. I had so many opportunities to sit there and be intimate with God. And even if it only took 30 minutes with my daughter, God taught me what isolation and solitude can do with my daughter. Because the day was busy, but the night was quiet. And it was just me and her. My prayer for y'all in this room is that you find time to lay down with God. Because it will be quiet for you. Let us pray. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, you know we always take this opportunity to take away your distractions for a second.